Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 13. <clears throat> 7 through 13. And I know the title almost verges on sounding like heresy, but this is what Paul said, okay? And I want to try to do a good job accurately of explaining to you what I think and believe that Paul is trying to get across here. Again, some of Paul's books are a little bit easier to read and get immediately. Some of them aren't quite as easy, but they're still simplistic once we get it. So may God help us to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here in 7. I think this is a great chapter. <clears throat> We're on the heels of really getting further in in chapter 7. It's a great chapter into seeing how God worked through Paul to pen and inspire this wrestling <clears throat> with sin and, and all about it. So it will help us personally in our weeks because we all do, as Christians, if you're a believer here tonight, we wrestle. We really do. If we're honest with each other, not trying to put on some kind of front or hypocrisy, <clears throat> you know, like say like Halloween, you pull the mask over your face. We don't have any mask as Christians. We help each other bear each other's burdens and encourage each other through the difficulties in our lives. Father, thank you for the book of Romans. It's a tremendously encouraging book that you've given to us today to apply to our lives. <clears throat> our task is to understand what you've written here understand these principles here, um, the text, and the rich theology. And our prayer is that you would increase tonight and that I would decrease. We praise you now as we herald your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> is the law sin? <clears throat> Chapters 3 through 8, the book of Romans is not a large, large book as far as chapters go, and it's not a large book to memorize chapter content, is it? Anybody know how many chapters are in the book of Romans? 16? So it's fairly easy to recognize them. They break up into theological in chapters, and it's very encouraging to have a good grasp of theology from the book of Romans. Three through eight of Romans, it weaves together in a remarkable way the different themes of faith and of grace, of sin, of righteousness, and of the law. Especially important for Paul's Jewish readers was his comprehensive treatment of the law and its role in a person's coming to Christ and how that plays out and works. And then how does the law play in living for Christ? So Paul established that the law cannot save. And we see that in Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5. The law does not save. He already establishes that. <coughs> that the law, it cannot sanctify. Chapter 6 is uh, chapter... Uh, salvific on salvation um, and that it can no longer the law can no longer 
This is wonderful for you and I tonight. It can no longer condemn believers. Chapter 7. No dancing, no hallelujahs, no excitement. Don't get too excited. You, if you're a believer, you cannot be condemned here tonight. That's outstanding. That's enough to get almost charismatic and like almost. I said almost. It cannot condemn you as a Christian, as a believer in Christ folk. Now, Paul is going to establish that the law can convict both unbelievers and believers of their sin. He's going to establish that. Folks, <clears throat> by the New Testament times, you know there was an awful lot going on <clears throat> when Jesus walked this earth. And by the New Testament times, <clears throat> i got to see if I can remember this thing right. Okay. By the New Testament times, Jewish rabbis had summoned up scriptural law in 613 commandments. How would you like to live by that, Dave and Judy? 613 commandments every day trying to make sure you have them right. And then try to break them down into 248 mandates. And then also, how about 365 prohibitions? And you've got to have these down, Isaiah. I mean, you've got to have them down to do right. And to walk by the law, walk perfect and please God. It's the kind of system that was going on. Um, the mandates <clears throat> related to such things as how you worshipped. Um, the temple, sacrifices, vows, rituals, donations, Sabbaths, animals used for food, festivals, community affairs, war, social issues, family responsibilities, judicial matters, legal rights, and slavery. And we haven't even touched the prohibitions yet. They related to such things as idolatry, historical lessons, blasphemy, temple worship, sacrifices, the priesthood, diet, imagine having laws about dieting, okay? Vows, agriculture, loans, okay? Business, slaves, justice, and again, personal relationships. Could you imagine living life like this? <clears throat> Some of you like to kind of operate that way. You get your yellow sticky tag out, I do. My daughter Amber does, she watched Daddy, and we, we just, like, every time you mark something off, you feel good about the day, you're getting it, things done, and some of that's just good administrativeness and taking care of your responsibilities, but the attempt to fulfill all the laws and traditions became a consuming way of life for legalistic Jews such as the Pharisees. As far as the divinely revealed laws were concerned, it is clear <clears throat> why faithful Jews tried to keep them in every detail. Through Moses, you'll remember, God had said in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law, and what? Do them. So you better do them, right? Or you'll be what? Cursed. And Paul actually reiterated the same truth in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. 
Now, why did God give his chosen people a law, think about this, that was impossible for them to keep? Why did he do that? His purpose was not only to reveal the standard of righteousness by which the saved are to live, but also to show them the impossibility of living it out without his power and to show us the depth of our sinfulness. <clears throat> the law was not given to show men how good they could be, but actually how good they could not be, right? That's why the law was given to show us how good we cannot be. You think you could keep all those mandates and prohibitions? Maybe for half an hour to an hour, but you're going to blow it by how many kernels of grain you have in your hand on the Sabbath and you walk how many feet on which side of the road that the string's on. Or you're gonna, it's, the law was given so we could see how really not good we are. <clears throat> the law was given to show people their need for forgiveness and for trusting in God's goodness and his mercy. After saying what he said in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, and let's go back and look at 5 and 6. For when, <clears throat> for when we were in flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Remember this Wednesday night? But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So after he gets done reading this, Paul knew the next question his readers would ask. A good preacher, a good person, a theological person in the word would be doing that. What shall we say then? Paul knows their thinking. Is, so is the law sin then, Paul? I mean, really? You think the law is sin? What are you saying here, Paul? Was the law given by God through Moses? Was it actually evil? They would wonder. What you're saying, Paul, you're condemning our law, the very law that we uphold from our God. Is it evil? Is it sin? And can Christians now disregard the standards of the law and live as they please? Because the law is in not effect anymore. Paul once again uses the strongest Greek negative, God forbid, no way. The law not only is not sinful, but continues to have great value for sanctification in believers' life by what? By convicting us of sin. So in our passage tonight, Paul actually gives four elements of the convicting work of God's law. He upholds the law. If Jesus, I would have loved, you know, there, everything that Jesus said you couldn't even contain in the books, right? He would have like, come on, guys, the Jewish legalist, you're messing with me. You're trying to trap me. You're trying to trick me. And so Paul is going to say, listen, he's going to explain why the law is so needful. <clears throat> Number one, <clears throat> in... 7b, sin is exposed by the law. 
Okay, so what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. By being perfect, God's law does reveal our imperfectness. Paul says, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. The law helped me. In other words, because God has given his divine standard of righteousness, we are able more accurately to identify our sin in our life. Paul's not speaking of humanity's general awareness of right and wrong. Even lost people who have never heard of God's revealed law, they have this written law in their hearts, Romans says. They know it, in their hearts and consciences. In this passage, Paul is speaking about knowledge of the full extent of man's sin. And throughout the rest of this chapter, chapter 7, Paul uses the first person singular pronoun. He uses I and he uses me. And what that tells us, it's indicating that he is giving his personal testimony which is very powerful. If you've come to Christ in salvation, your personal testimony is very powerful. Don't ever underestimate what Christ has done in your life. So he's using his personal testimony as well as teaching a universal truth. He's relating the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit worked in his own heart through the law before and during his Damascus road experience with Christ. Paul had been trained in Judaism, right? Since he was a young boy, he was trained in Judaism. He had studied under who? Anybody remember? Yes. In Jerusalem and had tried to follow the law meticulously, didn't he? During his pre-salvation experience of conviction... Paul came to realize that the most important demands of God's revealed law, they were not external, but he came to realize they were internal and that he failed to meet them. And you could, how frustrated is a person, you watch people get saved that way, but they're like, I can be a good person. I can be good. I can do right. I can do good works. And Paul and us, we've been in that same camp. You know, in high school, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. I will just tell you. I used to go out and party, get drunk, and just live as sinful as I can. And then we started a group called Young Life, which back in Wayne County, Ohio, in some pockets, maybe it's Christendom. Back there, it wasn't. It was a moral religious type of setting and I would go around our halls in high school and I would invite I would invite not just the jocks and the cheerleaders I would invite what we would maybe classify as the down and outers I would invite everybody to my home I would lay in bed at night a a good Catholic young man I was an altar boy for four years skipped out in CCD almost every week and ran over to McDonald's but that didn't really matter to God And I would lay in bed at night in my high school years and think, I am better than I am worse. I know I go out and drink and get drunk sometimes and do things I shouldn't, but I'm a pretty good guy because I walk in the halls of my high school and I'm not prejudiced. I invite the jocks, I invite the down and outers to my home for food and and fellowship and singing and 
I used to justify in thinking, I can uphold the law. I can be a pretty good guy. <clears throat> and Paul's frustrated. He was frustrated before his Damascus Road experience because Paul knew the law meticulously. He, he tried everything he could to uphold it. He says, I would have not known about lust if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. He goes, if the law wouldn't have said that, I would have not known that I was a lustful man. And you know, the, the word of God says don't lust. So when you lust, you know you're in sin. And we have to deal with it. And we have to wrestle with it like Paul is talking about in chapter 7 here. It probably was a growing understanding of his own covetousness that finally broke his pride. And it probably, probably that's opened his heart to Jesus Christ. Folks, the real battle, the real battle with sin is internal. That's why we have to be careful because I can't see your internal heart. It's not like you can have a zipper and open up your chest and see your internal spiritual heart. But be careful. You know it and God knows it. But the real battle is internal. It's the heart. It's the mind. You know, secular counseling therapy, or even strong-willed power. Lots of books wrote on the strong-willed power. Often can modify a person's behavior, right? You've seen it modified. Uh, people may get help for their alcoholism by faithfully following the plan of Alcoholics Anonymous. Or they can stop lying, or they can, they can stop cheating by submitting to a psychotherapy, right? They can do that. And can they change? I know people that have been alcoholics that are not alcoholics anymore. I know people that have lied that, that they are truth tellers. Are they Christians? No. <clears throat> Only the changing power of the Holy Spirit can take a sinful heart and make them pure and acceptable to God. And that's Paul's point. The law's part in that change is to make a person aware of their sin and of their need of forgiveness and redemption. And Paul says, I praise the Lord for the law because I didn't know I was covetous. I didn't know I was a, a lustful man until finally the law told me and showed me. And now in my heart and in my mind, I know I'm prideful. I know I'm filled with lust. I know I covet that, whatever it is. Folks, apart from God's law, we would have no way of accurately judging our sinfulness, right? God's law shows us how far short we fall of God's righteousness. So sin is exposed by the law, which is a good thing, right, folks? Yes? You like, your sin? You like to cover up your sin? No, it's a miserable route to go. <clears throat> Number two. Sin is stimulated by the law. In verse 8. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was what? Without the law, sin was dead. Without the law, sin was what? Dead. And Paul once again makes clear that the law itself is not sinful and is not responsible for sin. 
It is the sin that is already in a person's heart, our sin that's in our hearts, that takes opportunity through the commandment of the law to produce all manner of coveting. It was in your heart. You coveted because you're coveting. You lust because it's in your heart. You're prideful because it's in your heart. It's in your heart. The law didn't make you do that. The law didn't put it in your heart. The law just exposed your heart. Preachers have always preached the demands of God's law before preaching the grace of the gospel. A person who does not see himself as a lost, helpless sinner will see no need for a savior. The problem is with sin, not with the law. The word in verse 8, occasion, originally (coughs) was used of the starting point or base of operations for an expedition. Occasion, an expedition, the starting point. So sin uses the commandment that is what? The vehicle, God's law as a beachhead from which to launch its evil work. Okay. You be sincere, okay? And genuine. And don't, you don't have to say it out loud, okay? But when you see a sign and it says, keep off the grass. Or when you see a sign that says, don't pick the flowers, what do you want to do? For years, I I came out from kind of family. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I was on a crash course of discipleship and mentoring by my pastor, uh, Mike Wallace, welcome. And I get to meet Jay and I hear, you can't step on the grass. Oh, gosh, I want to step on the grass, right? I want to pick some flowers for my wife. Like, really, what do you want to do? I want to step on the grass. When it's the law, folks, (coughs) the law actually stimulates sin. In his allegory, how many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Many, many of you. John Bunyan... He paints a vivid picture, word picture, of sin's arousal by the law. Remember this, you probably will. And I'm quoting from his book. A large dust-covered room in interpreter's house symbolizes the hu- our human heart. When a man with a broom, representing God's law, begins to sweep, the dust swirls up and all but suffocates who? Christian. Unquote. For that is what the law does to sin. It so agitates sin that it becomes stifling. And just as a broom cannot clean a room of dust, you, you try, Mary, me try to clean that dust with a broom as much as you can. You're just agitating it. It's still all over the room, and you're still going to have to get the pledge out and dust and you're still going to have to get the sweepers out. And you're still going to have to, you're going to have to get over it. And, and that's the way it is with our hearts. The law cannot cleanse the heart of sin. But only makes the sin more evident. And it only makes it more unpleasant. Why, Lord, do I get drunk? 
Why am I so prideful? Why? Unbeliever and believer. Have you been agitated with your sin before as an unbeliever? Why do I get angry with my wife? Why am I frustrated with her? Why, why is my husband, I mean, he had COVID really bad. Why does he act this way? I say COVID fog, COVID fog, because I hear it so much. That's an excuse, isn't it? It's an excuse. Maybe I need, uh, I better stay away from that. No, I was going to say maybe I need to be loaded up on antidepressants, but that would just make things worse. So I'm not trying to start an argument tonight on uh, whatever. There, ask Pastor Carl about that one. See, I thought I'd stir some things up for you. The big deal of Paul's argument here is that without the law, sin was dead. Paul says that. Paul's point here in verse 8 is that sin is dead in the sense that it is somewhat dormant and not really like fully active. It does not overwhelm the sinner as, as it does when the law becomes known. Once you know the law, then the sin that's in your heart gets really agitated. You can't really sleep at night, right? You shoot somebody, you kill somebody, you rob a bank, you, you do, you, to the lightest of the lightest, it's all sin in God's eyes. And the law, when you read the law, you read, that's why so many people over the years, folks, they, they, they're such sinful people and they take God's word and you start reading and somebody gives them a track or somebody gives them a verse or somebody gives them a Bible. Why do people give out Bibles? Um, and they start reading it and they get so convicted and they're like, I, this is me. I need some way out. I need, I need. I need a good, healthy dose of moralism. i got to become a good person. No, then you come along and you say, no, it's not about becoming a good person. No, it's not about how good of works you can do. No, it's not about you being baptized. Or it's not about if you give $10,000 to Anchor Baptist Church. If you want to do that, great. But that has no bearing on taking away your sin. <clears throat> the law not only exposes and stimulates sin, but it also ruins and it destroys sin. The sinner, folks. So, Paul continues on. Number three. <clears throat> Sinners are wrecked by the law. Verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> Still remembering his own experience. This is a fascinating passage. <clears throat> I don't have time. Let's look at verses 9 through 11 real quick. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. I almost have had to read this like a hundred times to figure out what God is trying to say through Paul. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I get it. <clears throat> Still remembering his own experience before salvation, Paul says that he had been alive without the law. Oh, this gives me a headache, folks. As a highly trained and zealous Pharisee, he was certainly not apart from the law in the sense of knowing about it, right, folks? Would you agree with me with that? He was an expert on the law, thinking he was pleasing God. Would you agree with me with that? But throughout all of his years, Paul had served only the oldness of the letter of the law. That's it. 
But when a true understanding of the commandment came, he began to see himself as he really was and began to understand how far short he came of the law's righteous standards. His sin then became alive. That is, he came to realize his true condition in its fullness. It's like the, it was dead. He didn't realize how much of a sinner he was. Do you get this? Like, for me, I know everybody's different the way they come to Christ and the way they're saved. So many different. It's not like different way of salvation through Christ and Christ alone, but it's like so many different ways God saved people through Christ and Christ alone by faith. But for me, it was like turning on a light. It's like the room was darkened and turned on a light. I got it. And it's almost like Paul's like, man, I was so simple, but I didn't get it. I didn't know. I, 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 and then finally, when I got it, finally when I understood the law, then it's like, oh, wow. Well, on the other hand, Paul died. His self-esteem, his self-satisfaction, his pride. <laughs> Folks, they were, he was in ruins. You too, remember that? I can't, I have not told my testimony really. I was miserable under the conviction of sin as a lost man. Miserable, horribly miserable. I start reading books about the Bible. I start reading about prophecy. I call pastors talking about so much, so much. God used that portion of scripture, not John 3, 16. He used Revelation. He used Daniel. He used prophecy, fulfilled prophecy to make me miserable inside of my sin. When Paul saw the holiness of God's perfect law, when he saw Christ, when he saw Christ, he was broken. When I really finally got it, the light came on, and I realized it wasn't about religion that was going to save me, the Roman Catholic religion. It was a relationship with Christ. I was broken. There's a whole other part of my testimony of counting the cost. It still took me a couple of weeks uh, it's a, for a different time. But Paul says, what he had considered to be a means of gaining eternal life had turned out to be the way of spiritual death. He thought by keeping the 613 laws, he thought by carrying out the law as good as he could and being as zealous as he could and following God's law as much as he could, that he was a righteous, godly man. And actually, it was a reversal. He was a dead man. And the law was just condemning him. <coughs> God gave the law to provide blessing for those who love and serve him, folks. But the law, the commandment, cannot produce blessing and peace in the unbeliever because he cannot fulfill the law's requirements. And so stands under its sentence of death. For an unbeliever, when they read the law, when they read the word of God, you always remember this. They will never be at peace. They will. That's why, folks... Here's a little freebie. If you're doing a Bible study or discipleship to a lost person, it's really evangelism. But I would try lots of times to take the Bible and turn it and have them read it. I want them to read the law. I want them to be under a tremendous amount of conviction because God's Holy Spirit through God's word. The law does not produce life, folks. 
The law produces death. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are saved. Right? Yes? And we are given eternal life. Yes? Because the requirements of the law is what? It is fulfilled in us through who? Jesus Christ. That's wonderful, isn't it? We couldn't fulfill the law. We had a death sentence on us. There was one that fulfilled the law. This is the gospel. And you today that are Christians, you put your trust and faith in his work on Calvary to fulfill the perfect law. And now God looks at you and says, oh, you fulfilled the law through my son, Jesus Christ. That's, a, that's awesome. That's good news. <coughs> in verse 11, Paul says that sin deceived and killed him. These are radical terms tonight. Sin deceived him. Sin was, the law was his friend. He was killing Christians, wasn't he? Because he thought they were opposed to God. And he thought he was upholding the law. And as he studied, he got more convicted. And then finally Jesus puts him in the dirt. And he's like, listen, buddy, why are you fighting against me and my program of salvation? You think you're doing right, but you're right thinking living the law just exposes how sinful you are, Paul. And that's why Paul would say things like what? To me, Paul is one of the most godly men that ever walked this planet other than like Jesus. Jesus Christ, bar none. Uh, John the Baptist, other ones. you got your favorites probably you want to talk to in heaven someday. But Paul was a godly man. But Paul would always be like what? Like, man, I am the least. Why would, why would he say that? Because the law exposed, stirred up agitated how really sinful his heart is and tonight if you know god's word it will if there is any crevice of sin in that heart of yours it will agitate you you say i'm, I'm a believer not an unbeliever believers it will agitate you and stir you up and make you miserable until you actually deal with it now you say <coughs> how are we deceived by sin when a person thinks they are acceptable to God, a lot of people do. Go out and ask 10 people out on the street, are you a Christian? Well, you know, if you go to heaven someday, what would, would God let you into heaven? Would, I mean, some of these questions maybe aren't the best, but, you know, they're questions. And how are we deceived? How are people deceived? When a person thinks they're acceptable to God because of their own good works, they will see no need for, of salvation and no reason for trusting in Jesus Christ. That's how we're deceived. That's how people are deceived. What would it be like if you start talking to somebody and you're like, don't you see your need for a savior? And they're like, no, you don't know what I've done this week. I've been an excellent person this week. And you want to say, you want to say, you are so deceived. They are, and you want to, and maybe you should, but you want to kind of be careful because accusations, what? Harden the heart, questions prick the conscience, right? That's a biblical counseling term that we all should know. Accusations harden the heart, questions prick the conscience. So when did all this happen for Paul? 
this is sanctified suggestion. Uh, I think it would have happened sometime leading up to his encounter with Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. When, if you want to put a dot on Paul's timeline, life, I don't know for sure, but certainly leading up to his encounter with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings on the Damascus Road. Let me give you the last point here, folks. <clears throat> it's Sunday evening, and my belly's starting to growl up here. How about you, folks? Like pizza or popcorn or ice cream or I don't know, but it's going to be a good Sunday evening to rejoice in the Lord. Number four, sinfulness of sin is revealed by the law. See, folks, we're magnifying the law tonight. The law is good. Verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, Paul says. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Now, I might have misread something. Sin, law, I mean... So many times he mentions it. Hopefully I put it all right. Paul again answers the question, is the law sin? Which he starts out in verse 7. That's why my title was, was that. He now says, not only is the law not sin, but that the law is in fact holy. He says it's just. He says the law is good. Throughout the remainder of this chapter, Paul will continue to praise and exalt God's law. David did in the Psalms many, many times. Folks, the fact that the law exposes, it stimulates, and it condemns sin and brings death to the sinner does not make the law evil, folks. Let me ask you a question. Would you agree with me that when a person is justly convicted and sentenced for murder, okay, they pulled the trigger, they killed that person, in the 7-Eleven, and they killed him, okay? Are they justly convicted and sentenced for murder? Was it, is, is there any fault in the law? He's in jail. Is it the law's fault? You hope he's in jail, right? Killed a person, took the money out of the cash register and ran. Or they abducted that husband and wife's 12-year-old daughter grabbed her, took off in a van, which happens every hour of the day in the United States, probably. Sex trafficking is just as bad as drugs, if not worse. They get thrown in jail, right? There is no fault in the law, okay? The fault is in the one who broke the law, right? It's in the guy that pulled the trigger. It's in the guy that took that girl and threw her in the van. It's in the fault of the husband that just beat that wife up with words. It's in the fault of that woman that's so filled with pride. Right? Once again, anticipating a question that would naturally come because of what he said, Paul basically asks, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? And again, Paul says, basically, God forbid. It is not the law that is the cause of spiritual death, but instead it is sin. It's not the law's fault. It's sin in your heart. Sin's deadly character is exposed under the pure light of God's law. You read it. There's sin in your heart. <laughs> Watch out. God has given his holy, just, 
good law in order that sin might become exceedingly sinful. That you would be so much under conviction, not because of any one person, but because of God and his Holy Spirit and his law, his word, exposing the very sin in your heart. He doesn't want you to live in sin. He wants you to live in victory. He wants you to have hope and not despair. He wants you in the church to have help and not sit back for 10 years and hide all the sin that's in your life and the struggles and the trials. He wants you to get hope and help and rescued from your sin in your heart. The law is what does that. And that's why we talk about biblical counseling and discipleship. Because discipleship and biblical counseling takes God's law, takes God's word, and exposes what's in the very heart of the person. And instead, if you just sit back and like, I'm afraid to say anything at church to any brother or any sister. I'm afraid to go down front and talk to Pastor Carl because he might think I'm a dirt ball now. He's not going to think that. He's going to think glorious. This person has a chance for help now. God's word is helping transform them to be able to have the capacity to walk more like Jesus Christ in and through Christ. We talk about, we throw out these sayings and things and Bible verses and we say, well, go do them now. And you know, you get frustrated and I get frustrated in the pew and like, you just said this, be holy for I am holy, but you've given me no help to how to be holy for God is holy. We've got to use God's word to help progressively, daily, know how to walk and be holy in walking with Jesus Christ. And Paul is trying to help us here. So, folks, the ultimate purpose of the law was to drive men to faith in Jesus Christ. Is that an excellent thing? That's the ultimate purpose of the law, to drive people to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who fulfills the demands of the law so he could save anyone who would repent and trust in him. Now, let me close by saying this. Believers, if you're a believer here tonight, after salvation, still need continual exposure to the divine standards of God's law in order to see more clearly the sin in our lives and confess it. Then we can say with the psalmists in Psalm 119.11, most of us probably know that. Could we re, um, recite that out loud publicly together as a local body tonight? Psalm, ready? Together. Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Right? That's the intention of the law. And then we can also claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9. Okay? Could we recite that together tonight? Ready? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us. From all, not just some, all unrighteousness. You and I can claim that this week. You realize that? That's very practical. And it's very powerful, folks. So, folks, the law, is the law sin? I agree with the Apostle Paul. I agree with God that inspired Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write this book to the Romans and to us. No way is the law sin. The law is so helpful to us this week may god's word may god's law help you 
to walk in Christ-likeness. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for using this sinful man to save him and to bring him to a point of utter despair of his sin. You magnified his sin in his life. You helped to show him he needed something more than his good moral walk fulfilling and following over 600 laws you helped bring him to his knees to see his need for Jesus Christ you've done that so many people here tonight father thank you the law is good thank you for helping expose sin in our lives as unbelievers at one point and now as Believers, your children, you tell us in Hebrews 12 that you love us so much that you'll spank us, chasten us, because you love us. And you'll do that through your word practically, no kind of wiffle dust mentality, but taking your word and reading and understanding. Thank you tonight. We praise you tonight in your son Jesus' name. Amen.